Hello, wonderful reader, listener, book lover. I hope you're having the greatest start to your weekend or to whichever day of the week you're listening to this. Uh, this is Freddy, and today I bring you a fizzy, sparkling chat with the wonderful Sean Lusk. Sean is chair of the Nairn Book and Arts Festival, so you probably will remember his voice from one of our previous episodes. Um, but today it's all about his debut novel, The Second Side of Zachary Cloudsley. I really, really love this book. Um, it has a bit of the historical novel, a bit of science fiction, a bit of magic realism, all blending together. And uh, it just gives life to such memorable and wonderful characters. Um, but it's a wonderful story. And with Sean today, we spoke about the Ottoman Empire, clockwork and automata, human connections, uh, publishing and debut novel and travels around the world. So there's a lot to it, but it was such a good chat and I'm sure you're gonna love it. But that's enough for me. Let's hear more from Sean. Hello, Sean, and welcome to Northern Bibliosphere. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Federica. It's lovely to be here with you today. Nice. So we are in the midst of a thunderstorm with yellow warning. Yeah. So it's the perfect time to sort of be in with the book and just cozy in. Um, and today we're going to talk about your first book, The Second Sight of Zachary Cloudesley. Cloud Am I pronouncing it correctly? Cloudesley. Yeah, Cloudesley. 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 Yeah. yeah. Sorry. It's one of those like... Uh, um, I guess English surnames that sometimes are like, oh God, I'm Italian. I have to pronounce all the letters. Yeah, um, that's a nice thing. Although even in Italian, you have trick trick names and trick words, don't you? So. Oh yeah. Otherwise, where is the fun if you don't trick people? Yeah. And so, <laughs> but so uh, this is our debut novel. But I know that you've had quite a variety life of travel before become before going into writing so can you tell me a bit more about your background your travels um yeah let's uh, just uh, discover a bit more about yourself before writing yes I think if people pick up you know the book and see the little biography it kind of it sounds if I've done a lot of jobs I mean I was just one of those people that never knew what I wanted to do. I think maybe now I'm, I feel grown up enough that I've worked out I want to be a writer. But um, my first job was as a gardener. And then, um, then I just didn't know what to do. And I joined the civil service. But I, I was kind of lucky at, that I got, um, I, I joined as a, a sort of a passport officer. But then um, in those days, you had to learn languages and I got sent off to study Arabic. And then I went to Cairo, which really opened up my eyes to the whole of the Arab world and learned such a lot about Islam, which interested me a lot. And I was still just in my sort of mid twenties. Um, then I got to live in Pakistan for a while. So that was another incredible experience. Um, and by then I'd moved to work for the Foreign Office, which then meant lots and lots of travel anyway, <laughs> of course. Um, and then I had a job with something that no longer exists, but it was called the Civil Service College. And I was, uh, by then I'd sort of learned how to write for ministers and parliament and things. So I then got to teach civil servants how to write sort of concisely which I think has been even though it's a very different sort of writing I think has been helpful for writing fiction that's quite you know to to say a lot in a few words I think it was a skill I kind of developed and and I kind of in that job got to travel a lot around the world but particularly working in the EU which of course we <laughs> We were proud, proud and very involved members of until 2016. Um, so uh, I got to work in, in a lot of European countries and in Brussels and got to help some countries join the EU in 2004, which was such an incredible experience. Um, and very interesting from the context now of, of, of conflict with Russia and how important NATO was to countries like Lithuania, you know, the Baltic states. So it's, I was really lucky to, and all the time, I think maybe because I was terrible at school, <laughs> um, I think there's something about, you, you find quite a lot of writers actually 
quite maybe quite slow learners i think there's something about you just keep learning i never want to stop learning and i think that's that's really helpful when it comes to writing fiction and particularly historical fiction where you have a lot of research you've done some writing of course before uh, Zachary so uh, can I ask you a bit about uh, when you started writing why do you decide to become an well become a writer uh, how that went, how that started to be part of your life and how then it developed to your first novel yeah good question Federica I um I think at the age of about 40 I suddenly thought well, I, I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I'd never really written anything apart from what we all all write in our jobs and so on. And, and at the age of 40, or maybe a little bit before that, but in my late 30s, I, I did a kind of evening class or a few evening classes in creative writing and and got sort of really nice feedback from my tutors. And, and they sort of encouraged me then to start a, a course, a university course. But actually, I think maybe with family life and and, and work pressures, I didn't wasn't um, enjoying the university course very much and I started doing sort of courses Arvon courses or we have Moniac Moore up here which um, is is the you know residential course so I probably did three or four of those you know which tend to be with quite well-known writers and I was particularly writing short stories at the time and I'd, I'd had a few short stories published um, and I think I guess those tutors said you know you you really you know, you really can write. And one of them, it was actually the writer, Barbara Trapito, who some people might might uh, have read. And she said, oh, you know, I know just the agent for you. And she said, oh, just give him a ring. And I didn't know how, how difficult it was to get an agent in those days. So I just rang. And um, because Barbara had recommended me, he said, oh, yes, you know, send me your, send me your stuff. I'll read it. So he was my first agent. So I had an agent in three or four years of starting to write serious you know write fairly seriously amazing <laughs> and I wrote terrible novel I mean I wrote two or three really bad novels but I think that's also a thing you have to write the bad stuff out of your system uh so I wish I'd start writing at 20 rather than 40 but there you are uh I'm happy happy to be writing what I am now but the, I still love to write short stories and love to read short stories um and I'm sure at some point in the next few years, I'll get a short story collection published because I'd like that alongside alongside novels. Yeah, that's good. And short stories can be quite can be great, but can be also quite hard to sort of, I think, uh, encapsulate everything into that space and still making it an engaging thing. So I think it's always a fantastic thing to read as well. They're very different. Yeah, I mean, I I really love short stories. You look at my bookshelf over there, you know, it's it's full of short story collections. But I mean, many publishers, particularly in, in the UK, will say people don't buy short stories, which I think is is quite true, really. Um, much bigger market for short stories in America, I think. But um, they're very different forms and the discipline is different. And I think that was one of the reasons it took me a long time to get my first novel published because for a, for a long time and even now I tend to write uh, my first draft tends to be a kind of extended short story in the sense that a short story operates successfully on what's left out in the sense that you paint almost like a watercolor you paint hints and it's impressions so that the reader takes away a bit of a puzzle when they finish the story and they think if it's a good short story the reader's thinking why did why did he say that to her or, or why did she walk out at that moment it's more intriguing whereas I think a, a novel as with Zachary you know you paint a complete world that is a satisfying world in itself and you know there should be relative without overtelling but there shouldn't be too much guesswork in it for the reader so I I think they're very different forms which is one of the reasons why you know quite often you have writers who really are short story experts but not really novelists and 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 the other way around I don't think it follows that just because you can write short stories you can write novels or or, or, or mm. the other way yeah that's a good point so um well now natural question how did you get into novel writing and uh, where does the idea for Zachary comes because well it's described in the book uh, at some point yeah. but if you can tell me more about where that 
start where it all started because it's such a fantastic premise as well. I was like, oh my god, there's Automata, there's Istanbul, Ottoman Empire, and I don't know. I find that there is a fantastic period of history which I don't remember that much, but I remember enjoying it a lot when I studied that at school. So I was just like, oh, oh thank you. and I, actually, I've literally just just before this call. Uh, been sent a lovely email from a reader someone I don't know she's a librarian I've just I haven't even finished reading the emails quite long just saying how much she loved the book and that's one of the nicest things about being a writer when you get you know unprompted you know you hear from a reader who who says how much they've enjoyed the book so this was you know it was, it was lovely um I mean novels I think if you want to be a writer you kind of need to write a novel um, I think because that's you know if you want to a, a, a publisher so my publisher is is um, Doubleday and Penguin who are absolutely incredible they're just fantastic and I feel so lucky to be with them and um, but you know you need to have uh, you need to write a, a novel and I will confess I suppose Zachary is probably my fourth novel that I wrote I mean two should never see the light of day one, I think, I hope it will one day we'll see the light of day. But, but Zachary, I, I think I, I will confess that I threw the kit. You know, I want, I sort of threw everything I could think of to make it as irresistible as possible to an agent <laughs> and then a, and then um, a publisher. Um, and at the time I wrote it, which was sort of just pro- mainly before, but then in into the pandemic, uh, which such, such momentous time in all our lives, I. The, there weren't many books set in the 18th century and actually there have been quite a few by coincidence um, in the last year or so. There have been more 18th century set books, but there tend to be a lot of Victorian books. So, I mean, well, so many, but say Sarah Waters, 10, you know, a lot of her her books, um, Fingersmith and Tipping the Velvet, so set in the 19th century, and lot, lots of others, Essex Serpent and so on. And then uh, obviously we have a lot of Tudor set settings all the time. Um, and, you know, most notably the late Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall trilogy, which I, I adored. So, but the 18th century seems to me slightly underexplored. I agree with you. I think it's an incredibly rich and exciting time. Um, just so full of potential, the, uh, things changing so fast, people thinking the unthinkable really so freely, particularly actually, well, all over Europe, really, Um you know, it, so I found it exciting. I, I like that period of history a lot. I mean, for Zachary itself, I was in Istanbul and saw this old clock. And I didn't I, I didn't really have any particular interest or knowledge about clocks at that time. But I saw this clock and I saw that it was made in Leadenhall by a man called George Clark. And you can look things up in an instant on Google. And I saw it must have been made in, in a, probably the middle of the 18th century. And I continued to look into it and I thought, I don't, why is there a clock made in Leadenhall here in the back alley? And that led me into all of this research about clock making and the trade with the Ottoman Empire and actually time itself, because um, it was those were the years, there's about 1751, when England, Scotland had already changed, but England changed from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar. And that meant that days, days, sort of 12 days disappeared from the calendar and so there were lots of things that pulled me into writing a novel that was about that relationship between Britain and Turkey and time. But it was only really when I I realised that I didn't have a story because I, I didn't have the characters that I, I sort of stood back and the book opens with the, the baby Zachary being born and the sound of his cries. And then Abel, his father, runs upstairs to see that his wife has died, and uh, and that is is in a sense to use the clock metaphor. It was that's the mainspring that drives the whole story, really. The relationship between Abel and Zachary, Grace Morley, the wet nurse, who's found, of course, that day because the baby has to be fed, and how important she becomes, and then um, uh, Abel's wife's aunt, Aunt Frances, who sort of has her own ideas about how the baby should be brought up. So all of those things kind of almost wrote the book for me from that point on. Mm-hmm. It is a very traumatic start to be fair, and 
then it develops in a very nice way. I was like, oh my god, that, that I, I really I was really moved at the start as how the description of the room is because and just the atmosphere and this poor father, this poor man who had just lost this his love of the love of his life and uh, just um getting glimpses of how Alice was and what it meant for him as well throughout the book I found I found it really interesting um of course because of there's such a traumatic start and so many different people that then get involved into the relationship between uh, Zachary and Abel um so how did you why did you decide to develop the their relationship in this way because it's quite a particular um father son relationship I think so can you tell me a bit more about it yes I I suppose I wanted it to be a love story in many different ways and there are many different love stories in the book as you'll know but I thought the father-son relationship was very key to the book and the fact that I had a very good I, I was very stuck, I think, in my writing career <laughs> um, around the time I was sort of or just bef before I was writing this book, I sort of thought, oh, I, you know, I've got to make this happen, this uh, and, and you know, make, make sure this book gets published. And I found a mentor, um, a wonderful writer called Liz Jensen, and she really helped me a lot. Um, and one of the things she got me to read was some uh, book, books about writing of course I'd already read lots of books about you know how to write a novel as as most writers will have done um, but there was this book and I to my embarrassment I can't remember the name of it but it said that um, the the uh, every book has um, what was the phrase a, a miss a, the, the protagonist has to have a defining misapprehension or a driving miss something that that they don't understand about themselves which actually the reader usually can see and if you think about so many particularly classic novels that's so true and so for me I think I thought what what is this defining misapprehension that that Zachary will possess and it's it's that 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 he his father doesn't really love him um and and for his father the defining misapprehension misapprehension is that he isn't a good father to his son and i don't think that's particularly unusual in in day-to-day -day life you know that that fathers you know we don't always feel that we're as good good as we could be as parents and and sometimes children don't feel as loved as they could be and so i think that i wanted to sort of put that in an 18th century setting obviously there's there's intrigue because uh abel is is um uh, when when Zachary is still quite small, he's sort of um, fooled into into going to Turkey. Um, so so those those sort of plot drivers, I think, uh, uh, are quite important to have that sense of uh, of the reader rooting for the character, saying, "No, no, no, you've got this wrong, you've got this wrong." But but at the same time, you can see that see why the character thinks what they do think. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that it just like you can feel those sort of like not tension, but yeah, that sort of um, misunderstanding going throughout the book, and you feel so much. I I feel like you sit back and uh, you're I don't know, like in a horror movie, you're like, don't open the door, or like you know the out outer sort of story and the bigger picture, and you're like, come on, no, <laughs> and those missed moments. Um, talking about characters they're all like i love the characters in this book they're all quite unique uh and for, you have a big variety of men and women that are um in this book so you of course you have zachary who also he's not he's not just the son of a clockmaker a very talented clockmaker but he gets from his mother the second side he got some sort of supernatural um not powers so i would say that some sort of supernatural um abilities there we go abilities uh which is yeah it's, it's more subtle but it's more interesting in that sense as well and then 
again you have Alice which is never there apart from the very start but she's quite present in some scenes as well and you see these sort of snapshots of her when she was younger um and also through Aunt Frances who is this uh larger than life woman I really love her and she's just uh, again and everyone has uh these sort of like shades of really good and gray shades which we maybe don't see straight away so um how did you build the characters did you take inspiration from someone in particular um or uh is it all fiction <laughs> well um aunt francis definitely i didn't realize i took inspiration from aunt francis from this person until uh the book i'm writing now which is uh, going to come out next year uh, and will be called. Yeah, you're the first person to hear it, I think. Um, a woman of opinion. But um, uh, so uh, Francis was inspired by an amazing, amazing woman called Mary Workley Montague, who lived a little bit earlier than this book is set in the sort of 1750s and 60s. She um, she was born in 1689, and so she lived. You know, she was quite an old, you know, older person by the time you know the mid eighteenth century came about, and she was uh, just an extraordinary woman, um, a, a sort of early feminist, um, a, a reformer, the person who brought the practice of inoculation against smallpox back to Britain from Turkey. She uh, she was an incredibly brave and interesting and funny and witty person. Um, and I only realized that's where Aunt Frances came from. The publishers said, you know, we really would like your next book to sort of pick up on some of the themes that are in Zachary and, you know, readers will want, want that. Um, and when I look back, I realized that Aunt Frances was inspired by Mary Wortley Montague's Turkish embassy letters. You can see why I would have read them as, as research for the novel. Um, and I just realized when I went back to look again at the Turkish embassy letters that Francis's voice is Mary's voice, really. It's very much how she, Mary was. So that's where Francis came from. Grace Molly, honestly, I believe that she <laughs> she exists. By, so whenever I was writing Grace, it just felt as if she was telling me what to say. It's almost as if she's standing over me saying, right now you're going to say this, you fool, get on with it, you know. And so I just, you know, really didn't feel as if I was sort of my fingers were on the keys. It was hers. Um, like a cricket I, from Pinocchio, just there, always like yeah, telling you. And that's the lovely thing about, um, about, you know, being a writer really is, is that you have these kind of, or I think any, for any creative person, whether you're, you know, a musician or, a, you know, a painting or, you you have a kind of out of body experience if it's going well, and um, I mean Milan Kundera, who died this week, um, had many very sort of very famous sayings about being a writer. But one of his sayings was that um, every serious writer strives for that extra authorial voice, and he said any writer who's more intelligent than the books they're writing should go into another line of work which I think is a really good phrase because I think, you know, I, I think, oh, you know, I, oh, that's <laughs> a good piece of writing. But I never feel as if I've written it. It feels as if the page has written it, if that's... Um, and I sometimes think when you read some authors, you feel as if they're showing off a bit or are being clever. And I think that's very off-putting. I, I, you know, if you feel that the author's there manipulating you in some way I don't like that in a, in a book no yeah definitely I, I do wonder well talking about maybe some supernatural elements and someone manipulating people from outside uh, no I'm thinking one thing that I really enjoyed is that there is a supernatural element but it's so very much embedded in the story but like you know it's magical realism um and um but there's also technology uh, so yeah. how did you balance those two? Can you tell me a bit more about the rapport that these two have in the story? I'm so pleased you picked that up. And I love the way you put it, Federica, as well, because I think that is a, a really interesting theme in the 18th century, actually, because, you know, we're only a few decades from 
witch, you know, people burning women for being witches, and you know, I don't know, also, and convinced that there's satanic possession, and um, and it equally, we're only a few decades later, we've got steam and train, you know, and in industrialization, and we're in that period between where. Um, you know that you 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 read the history, and there was still a belief in sort of strange magic and strange incidents. Um, and equally, there were the, there was this extraordinary technology coming about. In and in the book, it's it's these incredible clockwork automata. So, in terms of the the magical realism and the sort of hints that Zachary has this kind of gift or special power, it's only really ever hinted at. And I I like the reader to readers can make their own choices about how much is true and how much is in the minds of of Zachary himself and the other people around him as to whether he can really see into the future or really see into their see what they're thinking um and of course his powers ebb and flow during the book and there are times when he really needs these powers but but they're not there um and in terms of the automata and and having able make these automata it, something very strange happened uh, and it's very relevant for for people in this part of the world because um i i think I, you know i knew about a bit about these incredible clockwork automata these amazing kind of early robots that uh that a handful are still in existence um there's um uh james cox's silver swan is at barnard castle the um the Bose Museum at Barnard Castle, an incredible thing to see. And then in Neuchâtel, which I'm hoping to go to because I've been invited to give a lecture in Geneva. But Amazing. I'm to, to Switzerland to see the um, the ones that were made by um, uh, Jacques Edros, um, or Jacques, Jacques Edros, uh, Jacques Edros. And uh, there's a girl who plays the piano and a boy who writes letters. So of course they were very inspiring for the novel but um it was locked down when i was sort of finishing writing the book so i couldn't actually go and see any of these things mm. um uh and so um i was looking on the internet obviously you can find most most of what you want to do is there on the internet and there are videos and so on um and i saw something called the house of automata and i just assumed it must be somewhere in Europe or America or and it turned out to be in Forres which is where I live <laughs> and so um uh, Michael and Maria Start who who have the house of automata you know they restore antique automata uh they're world famous I mean they are amazing you know, so, uh so of course I've spent quite a lot of time with them and at the workshop and learning about automata and getting them to check my research so it's become a great big interest of mine and um, I'm trying very hard to acquire some interesting old clocks for myself now. Just I've never done an auction in my life, but I'm starting to do auctions whenever before and trying to acquire some interesting old clocks because it's become, yeah, it's become a, a real interest of mine. Passion. But after writing the book rather than before that's really interesting um i think that yeah i didn't know about uh, again before reading the book i didn't know about house of automata in forest so that's really fascinating as well that is so close to home so it's something that you're like okay yeah i really want to go there and see uh what they do you know there's a thought because i think clockwork automata i wonder whether part of the reason they're so fascinating is because they do the sort of things that you you can do now with much more advanced technology, obviously with electronics and we've got AI and, you know, robotics and all of that. But they, there's something about maybe that technology is more, more comprehensible to us. You know, clockwork, we, we can kind of, even clockwork is too difficult for me, something to understand, but you know, you can sort of think, wow, that's, you just wind, you know, you just wind, wind it up and all these amazing things happen. And it's just made with things that, you know, things that are all, almost to hand, you know, you can make, you can make it all in a workshop. If you've got some metal and uh, you can make it. And whereas some of the technology that's around us now, it needs 
it's rare rare earths and special metals and electronics that for most of us is is way beyond our understanding and uh, so i think that's part of the magic that we can make magic from nothing and uh, you know and to me that's true anyway because everything comes out ultimately from our heads you know so um well part of the book is based in the uk but a lot is based in the ottoman empire where we explore some of the culture and i think it's just a fascinating sort of society as well back then and istanbul is such a melting pot in the true sense of the term where you have nowadays as well but back in the day even more so possibly just so many different religions and cultures coexisting together and it's not something that you can see quite often without a lot of conflict um so um it's a really fascinating society so can i ask you yeah how well why did you get interested in that particular society and i wonder how much did you get from your thinking especially for muslim society but also like try your travels around the world and having been inside societies that are not christian mm. uh, catholic so it's a very different yeah. set sometimes so how much do you bring up that experience as well into the book yeah it's interesting isn't it because we talk a lot about multiculturalism today as if it's something new and then you think well not really you know i mean uh but uh as you say a place like constantinople istanbul was uh it was a greek city and a jewish city and uh and a, a, and a muslim city you know and it was all all three of those um certainly since you know from 1452 onwards when when the ottoman turks um took over took over constantinople until that time it had been mostly byzantine so predominantly greek um and that's you know a lot of cities you know so in the period up until the sort of greco-turkish war in the nine which is recent it's the 1920s you had this real intermingling of christian and muslim societies and greek and turkish and big jewish populations in cities like thessaloniki which of course the events of the 20th century have changed a lot of that so we think well britain and, and france and so on are very multicultural with migration and you sort of want to say well hang on get a sense of perspective of history and how actually historically yes there have been times when countries like spain for instance you know purged itself you know throughout all the jews or but actually many in many cities uh you had uh incredible intermingling and and these different groups got on well you know of course there was sometimes conflict as well so that in you know that interests me i mean it, being in cairo uh a long time ago um but um egypt is still i mean certainly when i was there it's about 10 12 percent coptic christian and certainly living in cairo for a while you know you'd see the coptic christian um bishops walking around sometimes or the priests walking around so you think you know and it was an important it, it was and i think still is an important part of egyptian society that sense that it's not um mo monotheistic and that variety so yeah that interests me and then i did bits of work in istanbul i guess in the 90s but um i kind of fell in love with the city a bit and i think it is it, you know, I would say it's a really wonderful place to visit because Sultan Ahmed, which is the old, the core of, of course, is a huge, huge city now, very modern. And but the core of the city, the old city, which I write about in the book, it's hardly changed since 1750s. So, you know, you can walk around. It's now called the Top Karpi Palace. They didn't call it the Top Karpi back then. But you can walk around just as it's described in the book. It's it's not changed. It's preserved the Hagia Sophia, the incredible um, Byzantine church, um, which was a museum until very recently. And, and President Erdogan, a couple of years ago, turned it back into a mosque. Um, but, you know, the history of that building. So I could go on, but there's so much history to see there all the way from, from Roman times. And it's there. It's really just just there in a way that's not really true for for any other sort of European city. I mean, it's kind of on the borders of Europe and Asia, but 
yeah it, the history really is so so easy to see and live in definitely i really feel like wanting to go back just now I was there ages ago so <laughs> just uh, all the memories that came back but then just feel like yeah wanting to go back and visit again it's a lovely journey i think as you read as well um so in that sense it really makes you want to go um Another thing that I was thinking that I really enjoyed in the book is that there's a couple of characters who are queer, um, but it's not a main plot point. I like that it's there, and there's not a massive sort of there, there's no to there's no friction about them being queer. I like that it's a very sort of natural thing for them and for whoever is around them. Um, and I found that it's really something that is not done too much. There's always some sort of conflict related to people uh, being part of the LGBTQI plus uh, community. So can I ask you a bit about how you also thought about those um, developments throughout the book? Well, again, it was the sort of characters telling me who they were, which is the nice feeling. Because um, I didn't particularly set out to to make it a queer book though if anyone feel it thinks it's a queer book I'm really pleased that they do but I I I I definitely wanted I suppose I wanted to without being sort of um, didactic about it I wanted people to understand that just as today we're all different and uh and uh, that that was absolutely is true in the 18th century. I think there are some people that say, oh, you know, it couldn't be the case, or it was against the law, which it, it was, you know, for men, actually, um, to have gay relationships, and therefore it couldn't have existed. Well, of course it existed. Um, and actually, I mean, in truth, it was very class-related. So um, there were some very well-known um, people in the 18th century who everyone knew, well, certainly were bisexual. Um, in John Hervey, Lord Hervey, who was a very senior minister in, in George II's government. Um, and uh, everyone knew that that he had, uh, uh, Stephen Fox was his almost his husband for, for certainly for many, many years. So, um, you know, there were... So certainly they were. Um, I mean, one of the characters, without sort of giving too much away, um, we would call a trans character, absolutely. Um, and I mean, one of the nice things about that character and the reaction, even of my editor and, and the publishers, they said, you know, when we were reading the book, and when we saw that this character was uh, exposed as not being, as not being, born as a man um we sort of thought that the character would now because aunt francis is urging this character now be a woman and you, you know it's time women did these things so be a woman and actually the character says no i've lived as a man now and that's who i want to be that's who i've become um and you know that if you research it there were so many men and women you know women in particular living as men because women couldn't be surgeons they couldn't be naval captains they couldn't go to war but they did they did and they lived as men and whether their closest comrades knew because you imagine they must have done when they were sharing a cabin with them but but they must have won respect because in if you read the stories of some of these incredible people they were never discovered until until they, their deaths when they may have been a post-mortem or something so oh, this person isn't a man and you know so there are many of those stories in reality so I want if anything you know the book isn't a sort of attempt to put a modern 21st century twist on 18th century history by having queer characters it's saying saying no in the 18th century people were queer just as they are today and yeah yeah yeah, no, and I think it's very natural. And I really like, again, that everyone is comfortable in their own decisions as well. And it's not, again, a major, everyone else accepts it and they're respectful of it, which is, that's the revolutionary thing, I think. Usually you get a lot less people that accept that decision. Whereas here, 
or most of the characters are just yeah okay if they're happy then that's your decision and that should be well yeah although it's not it's not easy you know i th i i didn't want to make it too easy so i mean there are you know they've, they've had tr uh, terrible times uh, and faced sort of difficulty or prejudice or had to fight for who they were along the way i mean i think that's uh, that's happened as 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 happens today but um, but yeah i mean people pe you know the people who love them love them and and are yeah and again there's loads and loads of evidence of um uh, uh, uh of uh, you know people in gay relationships in the 18th century who were absolutely loved by everyone around them and uh and it wasn't an issue for people so we sometimes we have and i'm not saying that was always the case but we do have a distorted distorted sense of the past uh, also i think the 18th century perhaps a little bit different to the 19th century um i mean i definitely feel that certainly the first half of the 18th century th you know thought was exploding everywhere and i think things became a lot more conservative around the time of the french revolution there was quite a reaction um towards the end of the 18th century and uh yeah and i and i think things became more difficult for women you know because women were forging ahead in all sorts of areas in the mid 18th century and that became more difficult i think in victorian mm -hmm. times yeah that's interesting for instance seeing how it has changed throughout time um i was wondering yeah where did you do most of your research and um, what were your main sources what was the what was the most the part that you enjoyed to research the most if there's one I, th I think the moment that was most exciting and lovely was being in the British Library and in the antiquarian reading room and sort of uh you know having um these wonderful old diaries there was a, a British ambassador in in Constantinople in Istanbul in the 17. 50s called James Porter who wrote diaries which are just wonderful they're so well there are definitely things that are quite shocking prejudices that we think oh really you know he can people but but they're also real really open-mindedness as well it's a very interesting mixture so being being there and reading those diaries um it was it was a great experience and feeling that connection with times almost 300 years ago that that's a very special feeling yeah and how people wrote then you know people again the writing was very direct for a period in the middle of the 18th century and it became much more florid and mannered um a hundred you know 80 or 100 years later on the whole i think so i think there was a a period you can reach almost over uh, some of the victorian era to a time when I think we'd have we'd have recognised people more easily in some of their values and outlook and and the way they express themselves, which was more direct as it would be today. And I think there was a time when when people sort of drew back from that a bit. Um, and of course, yeah, thinking of the being in the library must have been just a fantastic time as well. I'm I'm so jealous. I'm like, okay, I'd like to do some research just to be in that environment. Um, yeah, and we have lots of great libraries up here in Scotland as oh, well. No, so. they're great. Um, yeah. I do wonder now, well, you you were in Italy to do some research for your new book recently. So can I ask you about, about what you're working just now? You just mentioned earlier, but what, what can you disclose? Yeah. Uh, I, I really ought to check to see exactly what I can disclose, but um, I... Uh, I think I can talk about it. I'm just literally doing the sort of last edits now. So I'm hoping that proofs, well, I know my editor's hoping proofs will be out by October, which would be great if they were. It should be coming out next summer, I think July. Um, and it really tells the story of Mary Wortley Montague. So yes, I was just in Italy because for the last 20 years of her life, she kind of went into more or less a self-imposed exile in Italy she lived in Venice for a while and she went to Venice partly because at the age of 48 she fell in love with the 24 year old Italian as you do <laughs> and <laughs> went 
chasing him across Europe, just part of her incredibly rich character. And um, he turned out to be gay and the lover of Frederick the Great, you know, just another little... As you do. <laughs> and she got involved in all sorts of uh, interesting intrigues um in italy and some scrapes including she was a whig and a hanoverian and a, and we're talking by then when she was in italy we were leading up to the 1745 jacobite um uprising and so she and she was in avignon where a lot of the jacobites were so she was hearing intelligence um and i think she felt very torn as to you know what to do about that so uh, and she was a very famous figure particularly in europe um uh, voltaire admired her so the 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 real core of the story is that uh when when she came back to to london when she was uh dying uh she she already was famous through her letters her poetry um, and uh, some of her political writings and and they'd become quite she'd become quite well known almost again she didn't realize how famous she'd become when she'd been living in Italy and she came back um, really very unwell and quite uh, quite frail to discover that she was this huge celebrity but her daughter was very straight-laced and felt that her mother was sort of um, uh, who, who you know this great celebrity was an embarrassment and Mary really got her daughter to promise that she would publish her diaries. And she had these trunks of diaries, some of them with her, some of them she'd left at a convent in Venice. For Just to make people. sure the daughter wasn't and burning her, them all after. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But her daughter, she her daughter did protect the diaries Good. for her life. I think she swore to her mother, I'll protect these with my life. But when her daughter was dying, some 30 years after Mary's death, she burnt them. She destroyed the diaries. So we don't have Mary's diaries. So that's my gift as a writer is there's this big gap. So we have lots of letters. Um, I'm in touch with the um, the Professor Isabel Grundy, who who is in, in uh, is 85, I think now, but she wrote the last really, um, really impressive biography. There have been one or two since, but really impressive uh, thorough biography of Mary. Um, She's an incredible figure. She, her, her voice deserves to be remembered because uh, to me, she's the epitome of women who've been um, written out of history and there are a lot of them. Uh, okay, it's right that we remember Edward Jenner and his, his, his discovery of vaccination. Uh, and uh, you know, if you look up Edward Jenner, there's streets, there's colleges, there's hospitals named after Edward Jenner, there's nothing. So I went to Italy because there's one place in the world where there's a street named for Mary Wortley Montague and it's in Lovere on Lake Iseo in Italy. Um, and she is very much remembered in Lovere because she spent quite a lot of her time there and loved the view she said it was the most beautiful place in the world and it is very beautiful um and so she's remembered there and there there are yeah there's there's quite a lot of books she's quite i the three books have been written in italian in the last five years um that that talk about mary and her importance as a woman writer but you just don't see it in britain she's so forgotten so that's good for me that she's forgotten because it gives me a good campaign next year, I hope, about uh, about a woman of opinion, which will be the novel. Yeah, I love I love Mary, and she's such an she's just a really exciting, interesting, free spirit. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I really need to look up the Italian titles as well, since it's centered, and I can actually read them. Sometimes it's just like yeah. Oh yeah. I can, um, a very nice uh, person that I met in Lovere is uh, actually getting hold of them for me and sending me some digital files. But I'll send you the three, the three books. They're about um, that. Each of them really is about uh, sort of contemporary women writers. A lot of them Italian, but some British or French. Who uh, and you know. Uh, who, for one reason or another, have been overlooked or, or misunderstood. Yeah, so I'll send you the titles. Thank you. No, I'm really looking forward to it. And it really sounds like a fascinating story. So really looking forward to read your 
book as well when it comes out. Um, while you are traveling, traveling to those horrible places to do your research, um, what are what were you reading? What are you reading just now? Um, this quiz. Uh, I'm reading uh, the absolutely wonderful. I think it will be my book of the year. Um, uh, uh, Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Demon Copperhead, which has just won the Women's Prize, I think. I think that's what it just won. Um, and I, well, is it, I'd have to just go and get it because in the other room where I've been reading it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a fantastic book. Uh, really incredible. I love it. And, you know, inspired by Dickens' David Copperfield. Um, and I do, you know, I know some people don't don't love Dickens and I kind of get it because sometimes Dickens is, is over-sentimental and sometimes his plots are so convoluted. <laughs> but, um David Copperfield's a wonderful book has his great expectations I love those two particularly but I I would say the thing that Dickens does that I hope I hope I can do a little bit as a writer is he just every character even the really small characters he he just draws them with such love uh even even ones who are really terrible villains and I really like that about Dickens. And you, you remember, you know, and they all have their own way of speaking and you you feel they're all real or real to him as he was writing as, as a character should be. Um, and so that's another nice thing about Dean Copper, but it's a, it's really fabulous. It's set in, um, well, it's more or less contemporary uh, book um, set in the sort of Appalachian mountains in Virginia uh, with a, you know, really a young lad who has an incredibly tough upbringing. And uh, yeah, I'm only about a quarter of the way through and it's I'm just uh, loving it, absolutely loving it. Amazing. Great book recommendation. Um, and with that, I think um, I just wanted to, yeah, wish you the best of luck with your new book. And thank you so much for your time. So that's us for today. Uh, I really hope that you've enjoyed these talk with Sean and I really hope that you go and read his book which is a really really fantastic read so um, I really hope you enjoy it too and thank you so much for lending us your ears today and this season um, I really really enjoyed editing talking recording doing everything for every single episode and any listener that has enjoyed it has made it worthwhile and just make my day so thank you so so much for joining alongside in this journey and if you enjoyed it of course as always please leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform and if you want to get in touch to talk about a book you loved or a favorite author or just if you want to say hi do get in touch northern bibliosphere pod at gmail.com or on our social media channels we're on twitter well x instagram we're on facebook this is gonna be the last episode of this season and um, i hope i'll be back soon with more news from the bibliosphere but for now take care wrap up and enjoy your books i really hope to see you soon uh, on the other side bye